Welcome to the Bridge Church on Zoom. Our website is The Bridge Online, and it was more appropriate than we thought when it uh, was dubbed. Our physical location is on the lands of the Semiamu, Stolo, and Kwantlen peoples. We are pleased to um, just, I guess, honor them by mentioning them. Um, I'm really, really happy to live play, work, et cetera, where I do. And I hope you guys are too. And um, yeah. Um, and I'm gonna do a bit of Lectio this morning. So I have a passage that um, I will share with you. Which is this one. Um, it is John 15, 11 to 15. I was thinking for Easter, uh, which is this whole season now until up until Pentecost, which is 50 days past Easter. Um, so the next six Sundays that we will focus on joy and life. They seem like good things to focus on for this season. Um, so this is the passage for this morning. So as we read it this first time, just see if anything jumps out at you, anything that um, anything is kind of highlighted to you as we as I read it. So this is John 15, 11 to 15. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. This is my command. Love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the father. So there might be a word or two that jumps out that kind of highlighted for you this morning. Okay, now I'm going to read it again. And this time, just think about how it makes you feel. Is there a sensation in your body? Is there a, a shimmer of anything that happens? So John 15, 11 to 15. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. This is my command. Love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the father. So is there any is there any word or phrase in there that jumps out that shimmers that gives you a physical reaction pop it in the chat
I no longer call you servants. I've let you in. Oh, I like that. I've named you friends. I wonder what holy mature joy is. I wonder if I've got anywhere close to experiencing that. My joy might be your joy. Okay, I'm going to read it one last time. And this time, just see if there's anything that Jesus is saying directly to you. This is uh, when he was talking to his friends. So I just wonder if there's anything that he wants you to hear today that's directly for you today. So John 15, 11 to 15, one more time. I've told you these things for a purpose, that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. This is my command. Love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the father. Jesus, thank you for your words to us today. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your joy. And I pray, God, that we would understand what it is to have your joy be our joy. And our joy be wholly mature. That we would know what it is to be friends. Let in on everything. Amen. Amen. Good morning from Steve and I. Good morning. Um, we are going to ask you to um, pull up a seat at a table today with a slightly different language for many of you. We're going to read through the Anglican Communion um, that actually we grew up with, we're quite familiar with. But for some of you, the words will feel a bit like trying to understand Shakespeare. They're words that you wouldn't use in your everyday life. So... Um, just let the words wash over you like a gentle wave of love. Um, it's just words that have been used for many years. So we're tapping in as we say these words, we're tapping into just hundreds of years of people worshipping before us. So just allow it to wash over you if all of the words don't actually quite make any sense to you. Um, and I hope that you find just a place to connect with God as we do this. Let's turn my text off. Um, She's pretty tech savvy. <laughs> she knows how to turn the phone off. It's great. <laughs> okay, here we go, everybody. Hear us, merciful Father, we humbly pray, and grant that we, receiving these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of his most blessed body and blood. Who in the same night that he was betrayed, took bread and gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. 
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. We're going to take the elements together this morning. So if you could grab your bread or your cracker, then we'll actually eat together as we read this next part. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. And now the wine or your juice, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is shed for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope that you have set before us so that we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. It's kind of nice, actually, um, that we were able to sort of eat and drink together. So although we're all in our separate homes, um, I really appreciated that this morning. Thank you, Father. Okay, we'll move on now. Eden is going to... Um, uh, preach uh, to us this morning uh, and so father I just want to thank you for Eden I thank you father for the amazing woman that she is who you love so much as do we and I pray father that as she um, speaks out what she's prepared to us uh, for us this morning that we can feast on all the things you highlight to us and that you would just breathe your life into each part and uh, Lord may it give us the feast that we uh, long to share this morning. Bless you, Eden. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, we're in the Easter season, and this is the second Sunday of Easter. Um, and for the next weeks, like Sarah said, uh, leading up to Pentecost, we will remain here in the stories of Jesus after his resurrection. It's interesting that uh, when Jesus began to appear to the disciples and others, he often started with fear not or be not afraid. So in choosing the lectionary passage for today, I landed on the one less known. 
It's in Sirach 1, 14 to 20, which is a book that was part of Jewish writings, written at least a couple of centuries before Jesus's time. And it's a book that has been in the Christian Bible since the first century, and today is still in all non-Protestant Bibles. Um, so Jesus would have been reading and at very least aware of this book. And as something Jesus would have read, I want to read and learn from it too. I understand that um, this passage is actually about wisdom, but I got stuck on the fear of the Lord part of it. And uh, that language and how it relates to this part of the Easter story. And so bear with me as we take a look at what this means. So I'll read the passage first. This is from the New Revised Standard Version, Catholic edition. To fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. She is created with the faithful in the womb. Um, if you're not aware of this, wisdom is all re always referred to in the female part. She made among human beings an eternal foundation, and among their descendants, she will abide faithfully. To fear the Lord is fullness of wisdom. She inebriates mortals with her fruits. She fills their whole house with desirable goods and their storehouses with her produce. The fear of the Lord is the crown of wisdom, making peace and perfect health to flourish. She rained down knowledge and discerning comprehension, and she heightened the glory of those who held her fast. To fear the Lord is the root of wisdom, and her branches our long life. So let me sum up. The beginning of wisdom is awe of the Holy One. The fullness of wisdom is to reverence the Holy One. The crown of wisdom is the awe of the Holy One. And the root of wisdom is to reverence the Holy One. If we juxtapose this passage in Sirach with those that had Jesus advising his followers um, at seeing him after he was raised from the dead to fear not, it does come across as a bit of a divergence of messages. Like, why would the same God who says, fear not, it is I, also command us to fear him. After all, uh, John the Beloved wrote that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. That's from 1 John 4, 18. So then where does this leave room for the fear of the Lord? It sounds like it's a double bind. But let's have a look and we'll sort this out, hopefully, maybe partially. I understand that some of us will have been raised with verses 
about wisdom being translated, uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Because I remember hearing this as a child and immediately absorbing this as, I need to be afraid of God. And sadly, fear was very foundational to my faith. This is how I understood it as a child. I need to be afraid of God because if I'm afraid of God and what they will do to me if I sin, then I will surely try very hard not to sin because I'm afraid of the consequences and the anger and the wrath. I grew up in a time and a world where spankings were still the norm. That means I'm old. <laughs> so whether I had misbehaved terribly or had caused embarrassment or shame to my parents, or whether I just happened to act out on a day when one of my parents had a low threshold for bad behavior, I knew what it was like to fear authority. This foundational fear of God, this emotional fear, is one of the most important things that I have had to work through to overcome and emerge toward a healthier faith. <clears throat> but it does say the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, it does. But that same word can easily be translated into other words and meanings that may land more accurately. We have been at the mercy of bygone translators that may have chosen to translate words that reflected their own theology or reflected or, or were a reflection of the God, um, sorry, reflected their own theology or reflection of God and have done us a misservice in the process. And not all languages are created equally. And we don't actually have a word that captures the true essence of what the fear of the Lord was intended to communicate in English. So, this word translated fear can also be translated as respect, awe, reverence, and worship. Though there's definitely an element of something like trembling to it. And I think that having a broader understanding of what the word means is very helpful in how we connect with God. I want to read this passage again, this time using the translation that Dr. Gaffney has created in our lectionary. So listen to the difference. The beginning of wisdom is awe of the Holy One. With the faithful in the womb, she was created together with them. With humankind, she built her roost and internal foundation, and among her descendants, she will be trusted. The fullness of wisdom is to reverence the Holy One. She inebriates mortals with her fruits. Every house of theirs she fills whole with desirable things, 
and her storehouses with her produce. A crown of wisdom is the awe of the Holy One, sprouting peace and wholeness, healing, skill and knowledge and understanding. She rained down and she exalted the reputation of those who hold her. The root of wisdom is to reference the Holy One and her branches are the length of days. This passage starts with the beginning of wisdom is awe of the Holy One. Had I been taught awe instead of fear, how might that have affected my early understanding of God? If I think about things that awe me, I land in a place of wonder. When I first met and held my grandchildren, I was in absolute awe. I didn't have words. I only felt a deep, deep love and connection with this brand new human. And I trembled at the privilege of holding them and welcoming this, them into this world and into our family and into my heart. If I understood the beginning of wisdom to be more like this than an emotional fear, I might find myself in a truer alignment or a better posture in how I relate to God. When, um, when awe and wonder and even curiosity are an integral part of how I consider God, I'm drawn to God. Our proximity to God is far more likely to influence our lives and how we live and what we do than living in a state of fear that we will get it wrong. It seems to me that fear, at least my childhood understanding of it, paralyzed me. It did occasionally stop me from doing something bad or stupid, but more often than not, it just stopped me, period. I don't believe that wisdom grows out of a place of paralysis. I think wisdom grows from a place of action with eyes wide open and a heart of curiosity. We gain wisdom when we observe our surroundings, when we research things, when we look at this world through a macro lens and see the intricate design of creation. And when we come to terms that there is something or someone who is present and much bigger than we are holding this world together. But what else might fear of the Lord mean? I'm going to rattle these off quite quickly because it's not what I really want to highlight, but I do want to acknowledge that scripture explicitly defines fear of the Lord, not as being scared so much, but as a lifestyle. So most often the fear of the Lord simply means obeying God diligently. You can find that in Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2. Um, the fear of, Lord, of the Lord also includes serving God faithfully, um, worshiping God exclusively, 
trusting God completely and serving no other gods. What I want to rest on is how Eugene Peterson defines fear of the Lord in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. I'll start on page 41. The biblical word of choice for the term we need is fear of the Lord. And that will come up on your screen how he's actually put it together. It is the stock biblical phrase for the way of life that is lived responsibly and appropriately before who God is, who he is as a father, son, and Holy Spirit. So the way he's written fear of the Lord, it's a hyphenated word altogether, fear hyphen of hyphen the hyphen Lord, okay? So None of the available synonyms in the English language, awe, reverence, worship, respect, seems quite adequate. They miss the punch delivered by fear of the Lord. The primary way in which we cultivate fear of the Lord is in prayer and worship, personal prayer and corporate worship. We deliberately interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to God. Place ourselves intentionally in sacred space, in sacred time, in the holy presence and wait. We become silent and still in order to listen and respond to what is other than us. Once we get the hang of this, we find that this can occur any place and any time, by prayer and worship, uh, but prayer and worship provide that base. Fear of the Lord is the best term we have to point to this way of life we cultivate as Christians. The Christian life consists mostly of what God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is and does. But we also are part of it. Not the largest part, but still part. The world has been opened up to us by revelation in which we find ourselves walking on holy ground and living in sacred time. The moment we realize this, we feel shy and cautious and we slow down and we, we look around, ears and eyes alert, like most children happening on a clearing in the woods and finding elves and fairies singing and dancing in a circle around a prancing two-foot-high unicorn. And we stop in odd silence to accommodate to this wonderful but unguessed at revelation. But for us, it isn't a unicorn and elves. It is Sinai and Tabor and Golgotha. The moment we find ourselves unexpectedly in the presence of the sacred, our first response is to stop in silence. We do nothing. We've seen nothing. We fear to trespass inadvertently. We are afraid of saying something inappropriate. Plunged into mystery, we become still. We fall silent. All our senses alert. This is the fear of the Lord. Or we don't. Uneasy with the unknown, 
again, like children, we run, we run around crazily yelling and screaming, trying to put our stamp of familiarity on it. We attempt to get rid of mystery by making our presence large and noisy. And when children do this in church, we call it misbehaving. But misbehavior in these matters does not consist in what we say or do so much. It is that what we say or do is incongruent with the sacred time and place. Until we know what is going on, anything we say or do is apt to be wrong or at least inappropriate. We all have experiences of finding ourselves in the sacred presence or unholy ground from time to time, however briefly. The most common of such experiences is being in the presence of a newborn child. Most of us are speechless and we still don't know what to do or say. We are overtaken by the mystery of God-given life. Something deep within us responds to the sacredness of life, common sheer existence. And our response becomes worship, adoration, prayer, awe. The fear of the Lord. When we hyphenate the words together, as Peterson has done in his book, it tells us that they are a complete thought. We can't dissect the words to try to figure out what they mean. We can't pull them apart. They are a complete package, like matter of fact. Those three words together mean something that each word defined separately does not add up to. So keep that in mind as we continue. What about when God is terrifying? I need to acknowledge that there are biblical authors who have recorded encounters with God that did leave individuals in a state of fear and terror. Consider Isaiah's reaction when he encountered God face to face. This is from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, <clears throat> because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That does seem quite terrifying, but God doesn't respond with a sense of glee at our fear. And neither does he say, oh, good, at least you know what I meant by fear of the Lord. Instead, from Genesis right through to Revelation, God consistently responds to fear with a word of comfort. 
Fear not. His people walked, lived daily in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's from Acts 9.31. And take note and hold the tension that that verse has of the and, the both and, the fear and the comfort. God is obviously not looking to evoke dread or fright in his people. The fear that God desires is love, led obedience, devoted service, and heartfelt worship. He invites us to be his intimate and trusted friends. He welcomes all who are thirsty for love to gather at his feet. He beckons us to come near as dear children for a blessing. So I hope you can see that you don't need to cower before the Lord as if you were a snake, like prepared to strike. You don't need to chase God as if he's a twister on the horizon, nor do you need to beg him to come as if he is reluctant or easily offended by us. Fear of the Lord is not desperately attempting to reenact those occasions when we fall on our faces as if dead. Nope. Those are sovereign, grace-created events that come and go. Rather, fear is the Lord is fear of the Lord is described in the Bible as a lifestyle of obedience and service and worship and trust in the holy God who says, there's no need to be afraid. My love is perfect and will free you from fear. One more short Eugene Peterson quote from the same book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Fear of the Lord designates a way of living that cannot be dissected into two parts any more than a baby can be dissected into what comes from sperm and what comes from egg. Fear of the Lord is a new word in our vocabularies. It marks the way of life appropriate to our creation and salvation and blessing by God. Today, and every day, Christ himself invites us to come quickly, to knock loudly, and to enter boldly. And even to those who come in the trepidation of their shame, he says again, right now, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. Our final punchline or our landing pad this morning as we're celebrating the risen Christ in our midst is this. I had summed up the passage as this, the beginning of wisdom, the fullness of wisdom, the crown of wisdom, and the root of wisdom is the fear of God. When the apostle Paul reads this, what do you think he heard? This is what he heard. From Proverbs 8.1, you, you shall proclaim wisdom. From Proverbs 8.17, wisdom says, I love those who love me. Those who seek me shall find me. 
And 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, to those called by God, both Jews and Greeks, those in and those out, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Let's follow Christ without fear, but full of reverence and awe. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Eden. Such an interesting um, history through the Bible, the, the fear of God uh, that you see kind of more early Old Testament-ish, and then the, um, but at the same time, and even more so later, the do not fear, do not fear, um, all of those kinds of things. Um, that's a good um, uh, thought-provoking kind of recap. Uh, next Sunday, we are live at the Legacy Building. Hope to see you all there. Um, blessings to you all and cheers. Um, I want to finish with something Eden said at the end of her message today, which was um, maybe as we come to God, come quickly, not loudly, enter boldly. It is I, be not afraid. It's like, yes, let's go. Have a good week, you guys. Have a great week, everybody.